Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled A Window into the Diabetic Eye, Strategies to Optimize the Diagnosis of Diabetic Retinopathy and Diabetic Macular Edema. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. My name is Christina Wang, and I'm a professor of ophthalmology and the Surgical Retina Fellowship Program Director at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Diabetic eye disease is the leading cause of vision loss amongst working age Americans. But tragically, it doesn't have to be because it's actually largely preventable with timely detection and treatment. In order for us to improve outcomes for our patients with diabetes, there are several unmet needs that first must be addressed, including improving screening compliance and early diagnosis of disease. Nearly all patients with type 1 diabetes mellitus will develop some degree of diabetic retinopathy after 20 years, and over 60% of all patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus will do the same. Additionally, nearly one-third of patients with diabetic retinopathy will develop either vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema, which is the most common vision-threatening complication. This chart here summarizes a few important aspects of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Both result from chronic hyperglycemia, which compromises the integrity of the retinal vasculature. Diabetic retinopathy can be broadly classified as non-proliferative or proliferative types. There are a variety of symptoms that patients with diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema may complain of, including blurred vision, floaters, distorted vision, scotomas, or nyctalopia, meaning poor night vision. However, patients may not have any visual symptoms at all, especially in the earliest stages of disease, which is why it is very important for patients to undergo regular screening. If you drill down farther into the different stages of NPDR, or non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, this graph shows you that the higher the stage, the more likely you are to progress to proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or PDR. The ETDRS study found that over half of patients with severe NPDR progressed to PDR within one year, which is very concerning because PDR carries a high risk of vision loss. This has major implications on the quality of life for patients, but also for society as this vision loss can force productive people out of the workforce and generate significant healthcare costs. Employees with PDR or DME are associated with a total cost approximately two and a half fold higher than employees with diabetes but without diabetic eye disease. In summary, diabetic eye disease affects the majority of patients with diabetes. Many patients with diabetic retinopathy may be completely asymptomatic, which emphasizes the importance of regular screening and not waiting for symptoms to develop before presenting for care. This is a great segue to our next session, which will discuss screening recommendations for the prompt detection of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. As we discussed in session one, since many patients with diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema won't have any symptoms initially, it is critical to screen regularly. For patients with no known diabetic retinopathy, we recommend a dilated fundus examination once a year, but those with diabetic retinopathy present may require a greater frequency. Unfortunately, we know that less than 35% of patients with diabetes actually receive eye examinations at the recommended intervals. And the reasons for this poor compliance are, of course, multifactorial. This study evaluated the reasons for not seeking eye care amongst adults 40 years or older with diabetes. 
Cost and access to care were common reasons cited, but the number one reason was no perceived need by the patient. This really underscores the importance of educating patients that diabetic eye disease is asymptomatic in its initial stages. Just because they aren't having any visual symptoms does not mean that they don't have active disease. So what is the recommended follow-up per the American Academy of Ophthalmology? For type 1 diabetics, within five years of diagnosis and yearly thereafter, unless disease develops at which point examinations will be more frequent. For type 2 diabetics, at diagnosis and yearly thereafter, unless disease develops. And because diabetes can be more difficult to control in pregnancy, patients with diabetes who become pregnant should be screened around the time of conception and once in the first trimester with subsequent follow-up frequency dependent upon the severity of diabetic retinopathy. Now, how does follow-up vary based on disease severity? Well, as we already mentioned, if a patient has no diabetic retinopathy, we ask them to return yearly. And the same holds true if they have only mild NPDR. For moderate NPDR, patients should return every six months, while for severe NPDR, I'll usually ask patients to return every three months. Let's look at proliferative diabetic retinopathy now. For stable PDR, every three months is usually the frequency I follow these patients, although active PDR patients may need to be seen as frequently as every month. For patients without diabetic macular edema, annual follow-up is recommended. And if they have non-center-involved diabetic macular edema, every six months is appropriate. While if they have center-involved diabetic macular edema, they're typically followed around every one to four months. So patients with diabetes should be screened at least yearly with dilated fundus examination. If diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema is detected, frequency of recommended follow-up increases. To delve into this a little bit deeper, the next session will focus on the tools and techniques used to assess and diagnose DR and DME during a comprehensive eye examination. Remember that the evaluation of a patient with diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema should start with the patient history. Always ask about how long they've had diabetes because the risk of both DR and DME increases with the longer duration of disease. HbA1c gives you an idea of their glycemic control. Ideally, we like that below 7%. Also ask about medications, medical history, ocular history, and of course, smoking, which is a modifiable risk factor for diabetic retinopathy progression. The diagnosis of diabetic eye disease can be made with dilated fundus examination and ancillary imaging. First, let's focus on the important exam components. Obviously, dilated fundus examination is the most important aspect, but visual acuity, a slit lamp exam, intraocular pressure, gonioscopy, and pupillary assessment are all vital elements to a comprehensive evaluation and can help detect other manifestations of diabetic retinopathy such as rubiosis or neovascularization of the iris, cataracts, and also even diabetic papillitis. Now, what about ancillary imaging? Well, if there was only one test you could get, OCT or optical coherence tomography should be it because it can help confirm the diagnosis of diabetic macular edema. However, color fundus photography is also very important for documenting diabetic retinopathy. I also love showing patients their photos. I think it really helps them better understand the disease and it potentially also enhances compliance. Fluorescein angiography can help identify subtle neovascularization that can easily be overlooked on examination. And similarly, OCT angiography is a relatively new technology that also provides insights about the retinal vasculature, but in a non-invasive way. 
Finally, B-scan ultrasonography can be critical for patients with conditions like a vitreous hemorrhage or a dense cataract that can limit visualization of the retina and can inform whether the retina is attached or detached. While dilated fundus examination is the most important part of a diabetic retinopathy evaluation, other things like checking intraocular pressure, performing a slit lamp examination, and measuring visual acuity are also critical. Optical coherence tomography, or OCT, can be very helpful in the diagnosis of DME. In the next session, let's discuss the stages of DR and DME, including non-proliferative and proliferative DR, and non-center-involved and center-involved DME. Let's now review the two major classification schemes that are used to describe the various severities of diabetic retinopathy. The first, and the one most commonly used clinically in day-to-day, -day, is the International Clinical Diabetic Retinopathy Severity Scale, which essentially divides diabetic retinopathy into the different levels that you see in the column to the left. Let me draw your attention to the definition of severe NPDR, which follows what we call the 421 rule. That rule describes four quadrants of severe intraretinal hemorrhages and microaneurysms, two or more quadrants of venous beating, or one or more quadrant of moderate IRMA. If any of these criteria are met in the absence of neovascularization, the patient meets the definition of severe NPDR. Mild NPDR is characterized by having only microaneurysms, and moderate NPDR captures anything between these two. PDR, on the other hand, is defined by neovascularization or vitreous hemorrhage and can also be divided into high-risk or non-high-risk, depending on the extent and location of the neovascularization, as well as the presence or absence of vitreous hemorrhage. Another way of classifying diabetic retinopathy severity is with the ETDRS-DRSS, or the Diabetic Retinopathy Severity Scale. This is a numerical scale where higher numbers represent more advanced retinopathy, and there are standardized images that represent each defined number. When it comes to classification of center-involved DME or non-center-involved DME, this is defined by the location of the edema. If it falls within the central one millimeter diameter subfield of the macula, it is center-involved. If it falls outside of this, it is non-center-involved. The top row here is an example of non-center-involved DME. You can see that the central subfield has no evidence of edema. In contrast, the bottom row shows center-involved DME. To summarize, there are two different ways of classifying diabetic retinopathy. There's the international scale or the ETDRS-DRSS scale. But in everyday use, we really turn to the international scale because it is simple to use, it's easy to correlate to imaging as well as the patient's examination, and it gives us an idea of the prognosis of that patient. The classification of diabetic macular edema is based on whether the central one millimeter subfield is involved or not. And finally, defining the severity of diabetic retinopathy and DME is important because it provides insights into prognosis, and more importantly, it guides treatment decisions. And that's a great segue to our final session, where we will discuss the guideline recommended treatments that clinicians may use for patients diagnosed with DR and DME. When a patient reaches severe NPDR, they are at high risk for progression. More than half will progress to PDR within one year, and without timely treatment, nearly one-third will suffer vision loss within two years. So what can we do to halt this chain of events? The DRS study showed that prompt treatment of high-risk PDR with panretinal photocoagulation or laser therapy reduced the risk of severe vision loss by 50%. Additionally, more recent studies also support the use of anti-VEGF intravitreal injections for the treatment of PDR. But what about treating earlier? Traditionally, severe NPDR was treated 
only with medical optimization and close observation. But as you can see, recently there have been two major clinical trials which evaluated whether treating moderately severe and severe NPDR with intravitreal aflibercept might be beneficial. Patients who received aflibercept either every eight weeks or every 16 weeks had a lower rate of developing PDR or center-involved DME compared to those treated with sham. Additionally, many patients experienced reversal in their diabetic retinopathy severity. However, there was no difference in visual acuity between these two groups at the two-year time point. Considering the treatment burden required and the lack of visual improvement seen thus far, treating severe NPDR with intravitreal aflibercept is not standard of care at this time, but it should be considered on an individual patient basis. Panretinal laser photocoagulation can be used for high-risk PDR and in some cases of non-high-risk PDR and even severe NPDR. Focal laser photocoagulation is a second-line treatment for diabetic macular edema. Now, what about intravitreal injections? Well, injections of anti-VEGF are currently first-line treatment for center-involved DME. Intravitreal steroids are another second-line treatment of DME and can be used alone or in combination with anti-VEGF. And finally, surgery is sometimes necessary for the most advanced forms of PDR, such as vitreous hemorrhage or tractional retinal detachment. This diagram nicely lays out what part of the pathogenesis of diabetic eye disease each treatment modality targets. For example, steroids target inflammatory cytokines that are prominent in diabetic macular edema. We currently have five available agents, four that are FDA approved, that target VEGF, which drive both diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. And finally, laser photocoagulation directly addresses the breakdown of the blood retinal barrier, which leads to vascular permeability. In summary, high-risk PDR always needs to be promptly treated with either panretinal photocoagulation laser, anti-VEGF injections, or surgery in the most advanced cases. Intravitreal anti-VEGF is the standard of care in treating center-involved DME, although intravitreal steroids and focal laser can also be effective. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.